Hey everyone, before I start the official start of this episode, I wanted to come on and give, I guess, a bit of an official trigger warning. In this episode, we're talking about sexual abuse. In my opinion, it's one of the most important episodes we've done, and I don't make any apologies for the heavy nature of the topic or the open and blunt tone of the interview. A key takeaway from the interview should be that we need to get this junk out into the open. It needs to be a conversation in our ministries, in our churches, in our families. At the same time, some of you listening are survivors of sexual abuse yourself. I don't want to re-traumatize dragging you back into the past that you're healing from. So please know we care and we want you to take care of yourself. This is just a warning about what's coming. And and if you choose not to listen or you do, you can always reach out to A Better Way at their website, abetterway.org, or through their Facebook page, facebook.com slash abetterwayedu. You can also contact us at TJP directly, and we'll point you in the right, right direction for more support. Finally, if you do listen to this, it's not a fun interview. There aren't many jokes. But please, listen through to the end, and maybe listen through a second time. Hope, um, our interviewee today, shares practical steps we each should be doing to fight sexual abuse and care for survivors and roll back this blot of sin on Christ's bride. So thanks for listening. to that Jesus podcast. Hey everyone, we're back with another episode of That Jesus Podcast. This is Drew Latin, and today, rather than Titus, I'm sitting next to Mrs. Latin. Hey, Leslie, how's it going? Good. So, uh, we usually start with some small chat and some banter to get going, but Titus isn't here, and he didn't tell me what to talk about, except we're never allowed to mention weather again. So, other than the lovely spring weather we're having in the mucky yard, do you have anything to talk about? No, I'm not allowed to talk about weather. My life is surrounded, like, I'm watching the weather really close right now, but I can't talk about it, so. So if you weren't going to talk about the weather, what would you tell us about why your life it revolves around weather? Oh, because when it's sunshiny, I want to be outside in the gardens. And when it's rainy, that's what I want to do too, but it's not as comfortable. I see. So if we were going to talk about the weather, contrary to Titus's admonition, you would be talking about how much you enjoy the warm weather and you lament when the rain comes. Yep. Okay. But since we're not talking about that, let's move right into our interview. We're continuing our series on uh, sex and gender and finding, uh, pursuing sexual holiness. Uh, today we are talking with Hope Ann Duick, a uh, friend and co-founder of the organization A Better Way. A Better Way uh, equips trusted adults in children's lives with the tools to recognize and respond to potential and actual child sexual abuse. Hope you've also worked and your organization stands with um, victims in advocacy. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So how long have you been in this work and, and how long have you like formally been with the organization 
I started working in the field of child sexual abuse back about in 1999, which was a long time ago, and back before it was on a lot of people's radars. At that point, what I did was a little different than what I do today, but it helped prepare me for this work. I was actually with actually helped um, start and run a small nonprofit that worked with female survivors. And we had a newsletter, a lending library. We did mentoring, that kind of thing, and allowed victims to have a safe place and a voice. And I helped with that for about 10 years. Eventually, my life took a little different path. And I wasn't as actively involved for a number of years, although I was still very interested and kind of involved, but my life was very busy raising our young children and everything. And then in 2017, as my children were getting older and it was obvious that child sexual abuse had not gotten really any better in the years and there were still victims left and right. And so my thoughts turned more to um, the need for the fence at the top of the mountain rather than the ambulance down in the valley. And that was kind of how A Better Way came to be, because we just felt like unless there's better teaching, more information, and more focus on prevention, we're just going to continue to see victims falling off the cliff and ending up down in the valley. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that a better way tends to focus your energies or your more position among plain communities and a Baptist background communities? We're actually equal opportunity educators, and we will educate anyone who's willing to be educated, who wishes to be educated. And occasionally, I think we end up doing some education for people who would maybe prefer not to be educated quite so much, but that's okay. They need it. So we'll give it to them. Um, However, we do tend to find that a lot of people who have Anabaptist background do get in touch with us. And I think feel comfortable with us because of the fact that we have experience working in plain communities and my co-founder and myself both have Anabaptist background. Sure. But we absolutely educate and support anyone, whether or not they have any type of Anabaptist background. And when we do seminars for trainings, we honestly have a mix. We've had everything from Amish attendees to people who have zero plain background or connection. And that's the way we like it because we feel like this is such a huge problem that it takes all good caring adults and all good caring people from every stripe of life to address this problem. We can help educate each other. We can learn from each other. And so we just don't feel like there's a need to draw some kind of denominational line or religious line. Yep. Yeah. It's such a pressing issue. You kind of have to step beyond the the typical boundaries and engage. But I do appreciate, in, in my observation, kind of at a distance, it does seem like you are providing 
because your last name is Duick, for example, there is a little bit more acceptance from some conservative groups or conservative communities that might generally be more hesitant. So I appreciate that. Let's let's start with like the real basics. Um, what is sexual abuse and specifically sexual abuse of children? Child sexual abuse is anything that's done to a child or with a child for the perpetrator or offender's sexual gratification. So that can mean looking at a child for sexual gratification. It can mean touching a child for sexual gratification. It can mean having the child view the offender for the offender's sexual gratification or forcing the child to touch the offender for their sexual gratification. It can include showing the child pornography because the offender gets some kind of a sexual gratification out of that. It's a pretty broad range, honestly. So um, it's an extremely broad range of behaviors. It's an extremely damaging and harmful behavior towards a child. And and you kind of already hinted at that a bit, but why is sexual abuse bad? Like from a Christian ethic, why should we worry about it? Why should it be a concern? Why should we stand against it? Well, first of all, It's very clear in scripture that God values sexual purity and holiness and that sexual activity is to be reserved for marriage. And there's no way that you are not in violation of God's laws and God's standards if you are trying to seek sexual gratification from a child. Jesus made very clear that children were precious and they were to be protected and cared for and that offenders who cause harm to children should have a millstone pitched around their neck and flung into the deepest depths of the sea. And if you know anything about the deepest depths of the ocean and study what happens to the human body when you're chucked down in there, it's pretty clear Jesus had no use for people harming children because literally what will happen to your human body if you're plunked down into the deepest depths of the ocean is basically your body's going to implode on itself due to the pressure. That's a really horrible, horrific way to die. And that is how Jesus said it would actually be better for you to have that happen to you than that you cause harm to one of his little ones. So, you know, if somebody's even tempted to think about causing harm to a child, Jesus had some pretty strong words to say. He doesn't take this stuff lightly. I don't think that he looks away and goes, oh, well, you know, shouldn't have happened. But, you know, he's basically a good dude. So, you know, we got to give him grace and mercy here, folks. Just don't bother about it too much. No, uh-uh. Jesus doesn't take that approach. And if Jesus doesn't take that approach, how come we're trying to sweep sexual abuse of children under a carpet and pretend that it's not that big of a deal? It Amen. is a big deal. 
Absolutely. One thing that uh, along with the along with the the language that Jesus uses about those who would offend one of these little ones, you see Jesus' example. Uh, Jesus is in the position. an adult, especially a male adult in conservative communities, is in the position of power and authority. They control the narrative, and there. And with a child or a teenager, the the power differential there can be very profound. And Jesus, even as he exactly. is our master, even as he is, you know, the Lord of the universe, he he humbled himself. He took children on his lap. He did not use his power to coerce others. And so even in a positive sense, Jesus' example speaks powerfully against using others, especially the vulnerable, for, for our pleasure. And, and the other thing, aside from the direct spiritual connotation, studies have shown, many studies have shown that children who are abused, whether it's sexually, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it can and does cause long-term impact that is negative and harmful on their life in a variety of ways. And yes, survivors can overcome that to a long extent but it still may not be ever completely overcome, especially the studies that have shown the long-term health effects and the long-term health impacts on the human body because of abuse and the stress that it causes to the body. And if we want to teach our people that our body is the temple of God and we need to respect it and treat it well— why then are we turning a blind eye to the damage that child abuse does long term to human bodies? Yeah. And ironically, especially for a lot of the communities who wish to ignore health insurance for whatever, you know, religious reasons or whatever, and yet they're not considering the fact that abuse causes long term health impacts. It's like, okay, even if you don't really care that much about children, maybe you should care about your pocketbook and be concerned about stopping abuse so that you're not having your community need to spend so much on health care costs. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, you know, bottom line. Even if even if all these other reasons don't pull you in, think about the impact to your community. And and with that, um, you know, speaking firsthand, sexual abuse has ripple effects to those those that love the vic- that that love the survivor. To those, even a supportive church, it it can really um, not permanently, like you said, but it can cause a brokenness in the image of God in that individual. And then we're in some ways having that image of God somewhat robbed for us until there's that healing. And so it it really impacts, can even impact a whole, obviously a marriage, a family, a church. A community. Yeah. Right. And those are what we refer to in advocacy work as secondary victims, because the damage is real. 
and the harm that it can cause to others around the victim is real. Um, you know, think of, let's just say, a husband who marries a woman who was a victim and she has not been able, for whatever reasons, to get good counseling, find healing. She's probably going to struggle tremendously with trust in marriage, especially at first. Um, there can be, you know, problems with intimacy for some survivors, not all, but for some. Um, you know, there can be relationship problems that are out and beyond just even the husband. And then a lot of times what we see, sadly, especially it seems like in some religious communities, because of the way that there's such shame and secrecy, then often the offender has not just molested the primary victim, but sometimes the primary victim grows up, gets married, has children of their own, and the offender continues to have access to the his original victim. Maybe he's no longer molesting her because she's now an adult, but then he's molesting her children. Yeah. So this brings right to, I guess in some ways should, should be an obvious question, but why do we have sexual abuse in Christian circles? I mean, it's reasonable to expect, you know, someone like uh, a movie producer to be, to be guilty of sexual assault. And we, we hear about that from quote unquote, you know, pagan Hollywood or, or, you know, wall street, but it's almost commonplace in Christian circles as well from Catholic priests to Ravi Zacharias, to some Amish communities, to, to Mennonite missionaries in Haiti. It doesn't, it's so totally contrary. Sexual abuse, especially of minors, is so totally contrary to a Jesus ethic. Why is it in our communities of faith? That's a really good question. And I have a return question. How many sermons against child sexual abuse have you ever heard in your life? Crickets. I don't think, I mean, I'll go one step further. I don't think I, as a pastor and, and preaching for at least 15 years, have ever directly, specifically presented it. Um, we've had church meetings about sexual abuse, but not from across the pulpit. And stop and think, yet yeah, in every other area of life, what do we typically tend to say? That we must teach. We must preach. We must warn here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, line upon line. And like you said, when it comes to child sexual abuse, crickets. Many churches do not even have members or adults only meetings about it. So if you're doing that, I applaud you. Keep it up. But it's time that child sexual abuse gets addressed across the pulpit in the same manner that other sins are addressed. Do we have to be graphic and scare all the children? No, but there I'm sure are good, healthy ways to start teaching against 
abuse of the vulnerable because it goes to not even it goes beyond just children and teenagers into young adults who are barely legal. And this is something that those of us in advocacy work have seen over and over, that a perpetrator will groom a teenager, wait until they hit that legal age, whatever it is, and then make their move and involve themselves in sexual contact. And they do that full well knowing what they're doing. So it's not just you know, we need to take a stand against minors being molested. We need to take a stand against the vulnerable. And a child or young person who's been groomed by someone who is predatory is still vulnerable, even if they've hit that magic 18th birthday or whatever the particular statue in that particular state is. So is it safe to say that in our conservative circles that and I want to say this carefully but that we've we've actually developed ideas about authority and um yeah about authority that lend itself a a safe quote unquote safe place for perpetrators to to uh, what's the word I want, Drew? Do their thing. Do their thing. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. is that fair? Yes, I think so. Because in addition to the fact that, like I said, most people are not educated about it. Most children, unless their parents were wise enough to teach them adequately, and no, just teaching your child, keep your dress over your knees is not adequate teaching. That does not even begin to comprehend the fact that many perpetrators can and do molest kids, even if they're fully dressed, even if their dress is over their knees. That's not enough education. Neither is some of the other education, which I've also seen, which is equally harmful, where parents are being told, tell your daughter that if anybody ever tries to pull up her dress or pull her underwear down, that she should scream and run away. Well, again, that's giving such specific training that your daughter has no idea what to do if, say, the perpetrator doesn't do that. Does that make sense? So there's all that problem, the lack of education or the lack of accurate, helpful education, and then you combine it with a lot of, um, like you said, the authority structure. And in many communities, there's a very strong emphasis that men are the leaders. And along with that, there starts to sometimes develop some male superiority and some male privilege and some male um little disrespectful attitudes towards women and children is just a little bit lesser than. And often in those communities, women do not really have a voice. So if you've got a powerful, well-liked male perpetrator and a child comes forward and says, he did this to me, who do people typically rally around? Who typically do they circle the wagons around and support? And also what factors into that and makes it extremely difficult is who is going to seem the most credible 
and I really want everyone to think about this. Who's going to seem the most credible? The child or the teenager who's been traumatized and who's terrified and who, even if it's only subconsciously, realizes they're risking everything to try to come forward and speak. Or the adult who is used to speaking, used to having influence, used to having power, who's going to seem smooth and relatable and believable? And it's actually the the lack of surface level credibility that a child might have in contrast to the the man who's been preaching for 30 years or whatever that should actually cause us to give more credence to the child. Even if on the surface, it's like, well, he has an explanation for everything and the child can't match these details up. And we quote unquote investigated it. And it seems like the child doesn't have every detail, their story straight. And the smooth talking, the smooth talking adult has everything straight. That should actually be a caution to us on the other hand. But that, that brings up a question like what, what should happen? Are, are we in the place as churches to be deciding whether an allegation is credible or not when it comes to sexual abuse? No. Not Why unless... not? <laughs> I've, it, I've, heard, I've heard uh, several times the proverb, he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, to him it is folly and shame. Therefore, before we go to the police, we need to make sure we get all the facts straight and we listen to both sides of the story and balance them equally. And only then is it appropriate for us to quote unquote, answer the matter to go to the police. Well, I'll just ask you another question. So you're in your pastoral study at the church, you're talking to one of your parishioners, and all of a sudden they start breaking out in a sheen of sweat. They're clutching their chest and shaking their arm and complaining about the pain in their arm, and they feel, tell you that it feels like an elephant sitting on your chest, their chest, excuse me. Um, so you decide with all your pastoral wisdom that, well, it sure looks like they're having a heart attack. So I'm going to heave them up onto the study desk and whip out my handy dandy, um, packet of scalpels and I'm going to get to work and try to clear the blockage out of their heart. Do you no. think that's <laughs> your job as a pastor? No. No. What What's your job as a pastor? To pick up that phone and call 911 and let the people who are trained for that problem sort it out, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Your job as a pastor is to do what in that case? You pray for the your parishioner. You maybe make some phone calls on their behalf. You activate the ladies' food committee because you know his wife and children are going to need a meal, even if he's only in the ER for five hours, you know, whatever. You do your pastoral duties, but you don't get out of your lane. It's the same way with child sexual abuse. Pastors are not trained to investigate. They're not trained to do a forensic interview of the child to accurately obtain information in the least traumatic way possible to the victim. So, no, 
it's no different. You can freely, with a clear conscience, pick up the phone, make the call to children's services and the call to law enforcement, and then you can do your job as a pastor, which is to support the victim through prayers, to support the victim's family through prayers and support practical ways, because this is trauma. Imagine being the parents who've just found out that their child was harmed. And if the offender is within your sphere of pastoral responsibility, then once law enforcement has had a chance to interview them, You can talk to law enforcement. You can work with law enforcement to know what are the correct ways to be supportive in a pastoral sense to the offender without harming the investigation, without causing additional harm to the victim and their family. Absolutely. But that's your job as um, a pastor is to be the pastor, not to try to be law enforcement or children's services, or in the case of your parishioner having a heart attack, it's not your job to do open heart surgery on that study desk. Yeah, and I think that might point to another reason why there is prevalence of child sexual abuse in Christian communities, that we we have this tendency at times to spiritualize things and to, to look at everything through a, Oh, well he stumbled or he blew it. And so he needs accountability. He needs, um, he needs counseling from someone within the church. But when somebody commits a crime, uh, especially of such magnitude as we already talked about, it's, it's almost like it's taking it beyond the mere spiritual like I, I have a the sin of gossip, or I'm coveting. It, it's not the same thing anymore because somebody else is involved. Because it's violating the laws of the land. Because there are are um, vulnerable victims, right? And exactly. so we can't we can't run the run into the error of treating it just as a spiritual issue anymore, right? So you and- mentioned. Go ahead. Jesus said that we're to mark the wolves, and I do not know why we would try to ignore the fact that someone who is willing to scheme and plan and plot and manipulate to harm children, they're a wolf. And Jesus had very clear, specific directives for wolves. He didn't say, oh, cry with them and coddle them and give them more grace and mercy, because I'm sure if you just let them have access to more little lambs, they'll get tired of chewing on little lambs and get tired of the fluff in their mouth and go away and leave them alone. Jesus didn't say that. He said, mark them, get rid of them. Obviously, If you have a child abuse offender, especially one who has offended for years, most of the time, they, you don't know about their offense because they've come and confessed it out of a desire to repent and serve God. No, even if they've come and confessed, odds are good they're doing it because they're scared they either got caught or about, are about to get caught. So they're continuing to try to manipulate. And a lot of people want to assume, well, I would feel so terrible 
if I had been doing something like that, no, if you had let yourself go down that path for so many years, your conscience would be hardened and you would not be you as you are today. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that doesn't change the fact that one, a, a sexual abuser does need pastoral care, does have an opportunity for grace from God. And it doesn't negate the fact, I've often heard this before, like a person can genuinely feel bad for what they did over and over and over and over again and show remorse, show brokenness, and even in a sense, have it be somewhat genuine. But repentance, which is what Christ calls us to, is an actual long-term walking out of something. And and so you're not saying that a sexual abuser can't actually show remorse. You're saying that that's not enough and that should not be our standard. Right. And I'm also going to say that many sexual abusers can make a good show of showing remorse because it serves their purposes. It's another form of manipulation. Is it always? No. But It may be that and often is. I'll give a quick example of a real case I know about where the offender, who had offended repeatedly for many, many years, even with getting caught and busted sometimes, and he would repent, but he would soon go back to his old ways as soon as everybody relaxed and their backs were turned. Which isn't repentant. Right. But he said he repented. And when he was finally exposed so thoroughly that he could no longer dodge law enforcement, during his interview with law enforcement, he said to them, well, but this time I'm sorry. Yeah. And his reason for that was, well, because he's sorry this time, he didn't think he should have any type of legal consequences of any account. And law enforcement said to him, well, that's great if you're repentant, but don't you think your victims deserve some sort of justice? Well, no, he didn't really seem to think they did. He thought he should still kind of go scot-free. And in fact, we know how thorough and repentant his repentance was by the fact that not long after he was out on bail, he was caught by law enforcement violating the terms of his bail and was in a home with a minor in his preferred age range, which he had been strictly forbidden to do by the terms of his bail. Yeah. And yet he had been somewhat trained. If he if he feels bad and he says he feels bad and he quote-unquote repents— then it'll be okay. And he'd been kind of, yeah. And he had been kind of trained by, by the church to do that. Yes, he had sadly. And that is because, you know, too often churches, church leaders, community members do not realize that just because an offender cries and says he feels so terrible and he feels so sorry, or if it's a female, she, that, that doesn't mean really anything. It doesn't mean that then you can go, oh, God bless you, brother. I'm so happy you repented. 
And, oh, let's put you back in charge of the children's program because I'm sure you'll never do this again. Yeah. Can we turn in and talk a little bit about sexual abuse or I'm thinking about cases where you have an adult in a position of authority. And like you said, like a, someone who just turned 18 or, or whatever the legal age would be. And it, it may not be in the eyes of the law categorically sexual abuse of a minor, but it's predatory. Again, I think of, I think of Ravi Zacharias. I know situations like this have happened. Um, in, in conservative churches as well. Right. Often it's treated as, oh, well, she was tempting him, whether or not there was a pattern of grooming. And it's, but just to be honest, without, without apologizing for it or without trying to make excuses, it is harder to know how to address those situations and even to talk about it be, because, because we don't have the law to fall back on. What do you, what are some thoughts about how we should respond to cases of predatory behavior and grooming, even if it's not technically illegal? That's a good, important question. And one of the things that I usually tell people is who had the power, who had authority. And you'll find in many churches, whether they're Anabaptist or not, let's think of, you know, like the independent fundamental Baptists or Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, who almost always has the power and authority. Yeah, it would be the church leadership. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The male church leadership. And so you take a young, vulnerable female who may not even have ever been taught that she has a voice or that she's allowed to use it. Because in many circles, the women are taught from very little on, you must submit to the men. You must obey the men. You must. And then all of a sudden, somehow they're magically supposed to know that they have a voice and that they can say no to unwanted sexual advances from a man who is in authority over them, like those two things do not even match up. And we're failing to see how that sets the stage for abuse and how it's weighting everything towards the predator and in no way, shape or form empowering potential victims to stay safe. Okay, so let me play the devil's advocate with you. <laughs> Let's. So I hear what you're saying, Hope, but the way my church sees it, the way I see it, and again, devil's advocate here, is that both parties were at fault. This is a case not of sexual abuse, but of adultery or fornication. And so bar- both parties are at fault. Both parties have confessed. And as a church, they've been pr- put under church discipline and we're moving forward, so we don't want anybody to talk about it anymore. This was this was adultery. It's under the blood. It's not child abuse. So let's move on. What do you say to that? Don't gossip. <laughs> well, I would say that what you've just said is a pattern I've seen over and over again. And I would just say, how well is it working out for you? 
And so I don't you... mean you as in personally, but for churches as a whole. And again, like I said, why are you expecting young teens to know what they've never been taught? So Not- say, say you find yourself in a situation like that, like you're you know, attending a church where a situation like this comes up and um, as a member of the church looking on, caring for the individual who has been victimized while the rest of the church wants to say, no, actually, she's not a victim. She's 50% guilty in this thing. How do you, and, and then there's this whole hush thing. How do you stand up and say, no, this was wrong. You were a pr- like so-and-so was a perpetrator, she was a victim, without it ending up being this huge gossip fest. Because you want to stand for truth. but And you don't want to be slandering. So but h- how, do you, how do you play that balance? I think it's very difficult. And I say that with a lot of fire, Because I've personally, as an advocate, um, been consulted on a situation that was almost textbook for that. And it was absolutely heartbreaking to know how to try to support the person who was in that congregation who saw that this was a case of a predatory pastor who was not taking responsibility. And part of the clue to me of who was even the victim in this scenario was because it was the young woman who came forward finally and was trying to get help. It wasn't the pastor. It wasn't the pastor. And that's what you'll often see in a case where it was actually more predatory and a a person in a position of power and control, even if it was not illegal, you will still see the victim being the one who's struggling, who's, you know, looking for help, who wants to get this out in the open and feels horrible and terrible. And you will see the predatory person, in this case, a predatory pastor, who is completely content to continue living his life as the sham and the farce and the lie that it was. It wasn't bothering him, but it was sure bothering her. So, yeah, there's so much. It is a really tough issue. Not in that it's not clear and not in that we don't need to protect the victims, but because we have such a culture of seeing women as the temptress. And I, I believe in, in purity. I believe I'm, I'm actually complementarian in my approach to church leadership. Um, and I also believe that men and women should attire themselves decently. And yet some of the emphasis on this, where women are responsible for men's purity and women are at fault if men stumble, um, women can't challenge a man or else they'll be considered unsubmissive. These are issues that, while I'm not saying totally throw out biblical conviction, 
I think we need to one examine our biblical convictions and ensure that they're that, but two understand how we actually apply it. And if we have what we think is a biblical conviction and we're applying it in such a way that it covers up abuse, that it blames victims, that it lets um, perpetrators hide, we're doing it wrong. Our theology right. actually Absolutely. has to make sense in reality. So I don't want to, I don't want to get too, um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to turn everybody off, <laughs> but um, do you have, are there other um, tendencies in conservative Christian theology that can be a bit of a blind spot or, or worse that need to be addressed so we can deal with sexual abuse and predatory behavior? Well, I absolutely agree with all the concerns you stated. And I would also add to that, that we're doing men a grave disservice by letting them think that they are not able to control themselves through the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I have had many men actually tell me that they feel awful when they're exposed to teaching such as often is aimed at women and basically blaming women if a man has any struggle with lust or anything like that. Oh, it's got to somehow be the woman's fault in some way, shape, or form. And this is often taken to horrendous extremes, even on victims who are in very plain communities and very plain homes, because there's this idea that, well, the man wouldn't have done it unless the woman or the child was somehow at fault. And I've heard even fathers been given a pass for having molested their own daughters because, oh, well, she must not have been wearing a house coat. I don't care. You're the dad. It doesn't matter what your daughter is wearing or not wearing. You are her father, and it's your job to protect her and to treat her with respect. I know of another case where the father horrifically molested his own daughter over a period of years. And one person had the gall to ask her, well, were you wearing a covering? And she said, well, the one time, no, I wasn't, but I was in the bathroom showering. Oh, well, if you would have had a covering on, then he wouldn't have done that to you. Excuse me? Why are we not addressing the fact that this father if he can even be called that, I think he's more accurately referred to as a DNA donor. Why are we not addressing the fact that he violated her privacy by opening the bathroom door and coming in and assaulting her when she was in the shower, which should have been a safe space for her? Absolutely. So there's all those issues. And then too often there's the cheap grace and the sin leveling, the idea that oh, we're all just a step away from behaving like him except for the grace of God. So don't throw any stones. Don't judge him. Excuse me, if you're just barely a step away from molesting children, I don't wish to sit in the same church pew as you. I do not wish to attend church with you because something's very, very fundamentally wrong in your heart. It's like this. If you're 
standing right up on the lip of the Grand Canyon and you get a little bit dizzy or a rock cracks off the edge, you very well may fall right into the Grand Canyon, right? Yep. But if you're standing back several yards away from the edge of the Grand Canyon, are you going to fall into the Grand Canyon if you get dizzy or pass out? No. We actually fall very close to where we stand. So if you're standing well back from attitudes and mindsets and thoughts that would cause you to molest a child, you are not just going to wake up one morning and stumble and molest your child. It's just not going to happen because it's not where you're standing. So we need to knock off this idea that it's just like, oh my goodness, we can just fall into molesting a child. I think maybe part of that teaching comes from like this idea that were it not for the grace of God, I would be there too, comes from the teaching. Like men, there is a segment of, of I don't even want to use the word Christianity because I don't think it's Christian, but that would that kind of have this teaching that men are just animals and they're out of control and it's their woman's job to fulfill that for them. So even if personally they're not there, they've been taught that they are. And so that right. is the appropriate thing to say. And so also- Yeah, so I think I think that there's guys who have it's like they have victory but they're not really allowed to admit it. Because they're taught that they don't need to have self-control because they have a woman. Right. And also, I think sometimes it's a form of trying to sound humble. Like, I don't want to be puffed up and judgmental, so I need to say, oh, there but for the grace of God, you know, we're all just one step away from doing this too. No, 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 no. That's like, I'm not one step away from murdering you. I've got no desire, no interest in murdering you. It's never crossed my head. I'm not just going to suddenly wake up one morning and murder you. Yep. So it's, it's very likely statistically speaking that somebody listening to this podcast has, has been a sexual abuser of children or is tempted to. What would you say to them if they want to get help or confess or move forward? How should they do that well? Well, first of all, if it's something you're struggling with, but you have not yet offended, thank God and go get yourself help ASAP, immediately, like now, today, because One, that's a terrible burden to live with and a terrible fear to live with. And you don't need to keep living with that. You can find good qualified help that can help you start to evaluate what might be in your life, whether you were a victim yourself. And I'll just add this. There are some former victims who, when they become parents or when they're caring for children, sometimes they can have scary thoughts zip through their head. And it does not mean that those people are necessarily 
actually about to become offenders. It's just that's how that history of abuse can work. And so it's really critically important that we let former victims know, look, you could have this thought, but it doesn't mean you're about to go molest a child. Many victims can have a thought like that zip through their head and feel such a sense of shock and horror and revulsion that it's clear if somebody who's qualified can help them look at that, they can start to see, oh, no, I really don't want to harm a child. It's just because I was exposed to that, it presents that kind of bird flying over the nest kind of thing. So that's an important point to make. But if you actually are truly feeling attracted or drawn towards molesting a child, you need to be in intensive counseling that can help you look at whatever your risk factors are, whatever your motivations are. And you obviously, if you're a believer, you need to have a pastor who you can be honest with, who will pray with you, pray for victory for you, with you. Um, if you have offended, that's a whole different ball game. It becomes a whole lot more serious then because in every state in the USA, as far as I know, and in most countries, child sexual abuse is a crime. And so you would want to work with um, someone who is able to advocate for you and help you understand the steps that you would need to take to turn yourself into law enforcement and do so in a wise manner. Most law enforcement would appreciate an offender coming in and honestly turning themselves in, even if that's not what they typically deal with. They do respect that. If there's a church involved who is willing to work with the offender wisely and within the law with law enforcement, they additionally typically respect that and want to do that. So there's just, yeah, there's a lot of different components and I don't think there's any exact formula, but it's definitely important whether it's somebody who's being tempted to offend or someone who has offended that they get help and not try to continue to live with that burden on their shoulders by themselves. And and with that, I think kind of a baseline is if somebody finds himself in those situations, there is help out there and they should mm-hmm. get it. And it should probably go beyond, in most cases, it should probably include more people than your local pastor, whether it's contacting a lawyer or contacting um, a, a professional counselor um, to to help you with this. What about- I, um, I always recommend a good professional counselor because these are complex problems and no pastor even is going to have the time and emotional and spiritual energy to devote to it that an offender or a struggling potential offender actually needs. It's kind of that case again of- 
do your pastoral duty, connect them to the professionals, pray for them, support them in practical ways, but don't feel like you can or should be the sole person in their life because you can't and you will cause harm to them and to more children and probably to yourself and your marriage and your family if you try to be that sole person for them. Yeah, good word. Then um, I feel like we've touched on this, your analogy of a of a heart attack and getting a doctor to help was good. But do you have any any additional thoughts if you suspect a minor is being sexually abused? What steps uh, a pastor or someone in the church should take? Well, almost every state has laws that would indicate, and again, this varies from state to state, that if someone has good cause to suspect that a minor is being abused, the person who reports it is protected. Because a lot of people are like, well, I'm scared to report because I'm afraid that if it's not found to actually be abused, then I'll be in trouble for making a false report. No, it's not your job to investigate. It's not your job to make a determination. And that is why the state recognizes that a report made in good faith is not the same as someone making deliberate false allegations. So you can be honest with CPS or, you know, whatever your particular state's Division of Children's Services is called. The names can vary a little. Here in Ohio, they're called Child Protective Services. So CPS. And the same with law enforcement. So if you suspect, then just be honest. Remember our little thing about truth? Um, Again, you don't need to call and say, I know Johnny's being sexually molested by his father. No, you can call and say, I have reason to suspect that Johnny is being sexually molested by his father. And they'll probably say, well, what gives you reason to suspect this? And you can outline your reasons. Or if Johnny is exhibiting symptoms of having been sexually abused, but you don't know who the perpetrator is, let's say Johnny is coming to school, he's crying, he's maybe clutching at his crotch and scratching a lot, and when you try to talk to him, he won't give you any good answers, and, you know, there's just clearly something wrong. So, again, you can call Child Protective Services, law enforcement, and say, I have reason to suspect that Johnny's being sexually molested, but I have no idea who. That's okay. It's their job. They're the professional. They're trained to investigate. They ideally should be taking Johnny for a child forensic interview at a child advocacy center. And it's not your job to figure out all those details. It is only your job to report. Now, a lot of people say, well, I'm not a mandatory reporter in my state. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. All of us can and should be moral reporters. All of us can and should care about the protection of children. Yep. That's really well said. It's as a as a public school teacher, I really appreciate the training I get every year on mandated reporting and um, trauma informed care and, and all these different things. 
And I do sometimes look at my own faith community and I'm like, man, we could we could up our game. If a public school can do this, how much more should we be doing that? And just want to echo and underline, um, you use the term good faith. And just to sort of drill down on that a bit, good faith doesn't mean you know for sure. Good right. faith doesn't mean you're presenting evidence. Good faith doesn't right. even mean, as you said, that you have actual names. It means you, you're doing this out of sincerity and you could be wrong and there's nothing wrong with being wrong in these cases. Exactly. That's why law enforcement and children's services investigate. And sometimes cases are found to be founded, and other times they're unfounded and they're closed. Yep. And um, for survivors of sexual abuse, then, you you hear that somebody um, has been sexually abused and you guarantee no multiple people everyone listening there are multiple people in your life that have been sexually abused whether you know it or not and and so in those cases if it comes out what's a good jesus like response to care for them assuming that the law has been involved or is no longer involved or they're not interested you know maybe it was 20 years ago what are some things we can do to care for uh, survivors in our church Well, the first important thing, start believing. Start by believing. Don't try to challenge them and try to, you know, ferret out any discrepancies in their story. That's, again, not your place. It's not your job. And also, a lot of people who do that do not even understand, really, how trauma impacts the human brain and the fact that it can make survivors' stories seem sketchy. Or I had one person say, oh, well, she's not believable because one time when she talks, she tells this detail, and the next time when she talks, she tells a completely different detail. And I'm like, but that's trauma. That's how the traumatized human brain works. And so many times people don't understand the least most basic thing about how trauma impacts the human brain. Trauma actually literally makes actual physical documentable changes in the human brain at times. And it certainly impacts memory, recall, all kinds of things. So start by believing, start by expressing support. And it can be literally as simple as, I am so sorry. Those are very powerful words for most survivors to hear. No matter how many years it's been since they first disclosed, it's always safe to say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I wish it hadn't happened to you. If you're in a position to do more, That can be good, but again, make sure you're not being nosy. It's not your job to try to ferret out their story. It's not your job to be their counselor. Um, But there's so many ways you can support them. Let's say they're struggling and you can do research and help them potentially connect with a couple options for a good counselor. You can find out, do they need a ride to the counselor on a regular basis? Do they need a gas card? Um, Do they need help with counseling funds? Counseling, good quality counseling is not cheap. And 
many survivors do not get the help that they need simply because of the cost factor. And in fact, I can tell you that one of the things advocates often end up doing is either contributing money out of their own personal pocket or working hard to try to raise funds for survivors to get counseling. And it would be really helpful as advocates if we didn't have to take that additional responsibility on ourselves. It would be wonderful if churches would start stepping up and saying, here, let us help fund this because we know it's an additional stress on your life. So there's just so many things like that. And the other thing I tell people, think of it as grief. Our churches are often really good at knowing what to do when there's been a death. We mobilize the meals. We take in flowers. We send gift baskets, you know, those kinds of things. Well, with sexual abuse, there's so much grief. There's so much trauma. And we can come alongside in really helpful, practical, supportive ways where we're staying in our own lane. We're not trying to play the role of a cop. We're not trying to play the role of CPS. We're not trying to play the role of um, a professional counselor, but we can be Jesus' hands and feet, and we can be the church to survivors or to secondary victims in the case, let's say, of a family who's just recently found out their child was molested. Why are we not bringing in meals? Why are we not giving them gas vouchers for them to take their children to the many appointments? Why are we not doing some of these practical things? And we can, we just need to learn to do it. Such a good encouragement. Thank you so much. I'll also say that that your website has a lot of good resources, a betterway.org. And um and there are there are actually lots of resources available to to put on to put some more meat on what you've shared. Uh one more question. Just sitting here with Lissell talking with you, like I'm kind of drained. <laughs> it's it's just a lot. I, I imagine that some of the people listening, they're kind of drained. Maybe they've been triggered. Um, how do you just practically in this work, how do you, how do you cope? What are some things that you do to keep yourself healthy, emotionally, healthy, spiritually, healthy, mentally? Well, for one thing, I've learned to be really honest with God. Because it is very draining, and sometimes it is absolutely overwhelming. And I have never forgotten one time I was driving to town, and I was praying because my car is sometimes where I have some of my best prayer times with God, and I was crying. And I just finally said, God, it hurts so much. And he told me something I have never forgotten. This was years ago, back when I was involved with the first ministry that I helped with. And what he said to me was, but I promise you, if I let your, if you let your heart be broken for what breaks mine, you can know I will comfort you. And I have never, ever forgotten that. Because it is true. And that is really the only way I can do this work is because of the comfort that God gives me. 
So there's that. The other thing, I do have a counselor myself that I can touch base with when I need to. And that's very important for me because, as you can imagine, doing this kind of work, it takes a huge toll on me personally, emotionally. So it's very helpful to have a counselor that I can process things with. I also am very blessed to have some wonderful advocate friends who I can process things with and who pray with me and for me and we pray for each other. That's a huge key. I do not think this kind of work is anything that somebody should be trying to do in a lone ranger sort of sense. We absolutely cannot do well if we're trying to do it all by ourselves. And then I am very intentional about self-care. And especially since our daughter died a little over a year ago, I have had to be very, very intentional about that. Um, Basically, I have to try to make sure every single day that I do something that is specifically for self-care. And some days, all it looks like is saying, hey, today I managed to get a shower and I'm going to bed. But I generally try to do better than that. It might mean 10 minutes with a fluffy book that has nothing to do with my work. It might mean just buying a cup of tea and sitting in the sunshine and drinking it. It might mean going for a walk in a flower garden. Um, That's one of my favorites. I find that very helpful. And I try to do it at least once a week. I also um, have a wonderful supportive husband. And although he is kind of quiet and doesn't really like the limelight, and he'll be the first to say, I don't really know that much about this. I honestly could not do what I'm doing without the support of him and my family, because they pitch in and carry often a huge share of what would normally be thought of as mom's work in order to allow me to continue doing what I'm doing. And so, yeah. It's just one of those things, I guess you would say, God provides. Where he calls and leads, he provides. But we just really appreciate the people who let us know they're praying for us because, honestly, it's too big and too heavy to do without so much prayer support. Thanks a lot for that answer. And I encourage everyone to (laughs) pray for Hope and Doik and the ministry there. Uh, You can find their website to either support or to find support at abetterway.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Hope, and for everything you're doing for the kingdom. Thank you. And thank you for everything you're doing as well. 